0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in us the fire of your divine love. Send forth your Spirit, and we shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Amen. Hello. My name is Eric Immel. I'm a Jesuit studying Theology at the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, and I have the privilege of being with you these next six days. I wanna welcome you to the Jesuit Post and to this retreat, Live the Questions, a Holy Week retreat in the Ignatian tradition. Above all else, the hope for our time together these days is simple, greater intimacy with our good and loving God. A bit more about me and Ignatius and what exactly I'm inviting you to do in just a moment. But right off the bat, A few words of gratitude are in order. First, thank you for participating. Some of you may have planned to join this retreat long in advance. Some of you may have just found this video in your regular perusal of the Jesuit post. Some of you might be people in my life who want to show me a little love. However, you found yourself here today. Know that I'm grateful for your willingness to walk this path with me and above all with God. It will be, I hope, a fruitful experience. Second, to the Jesuit Post, and especially to Brian Strasburger for the invitation and for charting the path on this kind of retreat last year, and to Tucker Redding and Jose Dueno, who are the tech wizards behind making these talks a reality for you. I have been a regular contributor with TJP since 2013, and I'm particularly happy for this chance to offer something new and for their partnership. Third, to my brother Jesuits who served as a sounding board for the content of this retreat. I'm sure that many of us feel when embarking on new ventures that that we can't operate in a vacuum, and I do very little that is worthwhile on my own. And so I hope that their listening ear and helpful feedback has led to something of which they are proud and in which they see their hands at work. Finally, of course, thanks to God. God, more than anyone, knows that I tend to bumble along in this life of faith. And so whatever I offer is offered through the divine and the sweet Holy Spirit. And I trust that charged by that spirit, we are guided by God's loving hand. So, what are we doing here? As I mentioned, we're making a retreat, a kind of retreat sometimes called a preached retreat, common in a number of retreat houses around the United States. Through a series of talks offered to you over the course of the next six days, I will do my very best to guide you through an experience of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, mystic, pilgrim, and founder of the Society of Jesus. The title of this retreat, Live the Questions, comes to us from Rainer Maria Rilke, who said, quote, Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, and without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. We'll frame our experience around six simple but important questions together. And I'll offer some stories, some scripture, some insights, all of which you can take or you can leave. So long as you are pursuing some greater depth in your relationship with God, you and I are doing this well together. I would only ask three things of you first. Be open. With the Holy Spirit guiding us, anything can happen. And when it comes to the Spirit of God, typically in my experience, good things happen. Second, remember that God is at work in your life right now. We are in partnership with our good and loving God, and we never walk alone. Third, listen. As a perpetually loud and extroverted person myself, Listening can often be difficult, especially with the busyness of everyday life, but I trust that posing big questions to God and leaving some quiet room for answers is a universally good thing. As we begin today and always, we'll start right from where we are. Our reality in this moment, the literal place that we find ourselves, is the only place from which we can begin anything. And with that, I pose to you the first question that will guide our retreat experience. Where are you? This question, where are you, is in the canon of our sacred scripture. And in fact, it is the very first question that God asks humanity, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, there they were, the first humans living in paradise. And scripture tells us that they felt No shame, but they were like us, like you and like me, which means that they pondered. In this case, they pondered a strange and forbidden fruit, which they then ate. After they ate it, they realized that they were naked. They covered themselves, and they hid. Where are you? God asked when God came looking. Where are you? And to you who make this retreat, Where are you? Three simple but important things to consider in asking this first question. First, you came from somewhere to get here. You may have come from running errands or from work. Perhaps you came from the kitchen, a hot cup of coffee or tea accompanying you as you sat down in front of your computer screen. You may come from an educational background where the stuff of God may or may not have been explicitly discussed. You may come from a family, a mother and a father, but maybe not. Perhaps sisters and brothers, aunts, uncles, cousins. Perhaps a chosen family, a family that shaped you and are a part of you. Perhaps you've had a variety of jobs, you've had friends come and go. You may have had lingering memories of hardship and heartbreak. You came from a place, for me a series of places, and you Perhaps from a city or suburb, from a home you loved, or a home that you would rather forget. The point is that you came from somewhere. You have a history, and that history is the stuff of which this retreat will be made. Where are you? Wherever you are, it took some time to get here, and from here we begin. The second thing about this question, where are you, requires an acknowledgement that we are in relationship with God. And God is looking for you. God searched for us in the Garden of Eden, and God still searches for us now. Asking ourselves where we are is one of the many ways we can allow ourselves to be seen, not to hide, not to avoid, and not to run. After all, who among us doesn't want to be noticed? Who among us doesn't want to be found? The third thing, really quickly, Where you are right now might be exactly where you want to be, but it may not be, and that's okay. Our guide for this retreat truly is the Holy Spirit, but if we were to manifest that spirit in a human face, it would be St. Ignatius Loyola. Now, Ignatius once found himself in a place that he did not want to be. In his autobiography, he begins by saying that up until the age of 26, he was a man taken by the vanities of the world. Until that point, Ignatius was destined for a life of nobility and enjoyed his share of fighting, drinking, and recklessness in relationships. But all that changed when he took a cannonball to the knee in the Battle of Pamplona. His injury, which now occurred almost 500 years ago, and the subsequent convalescence forced Ignatius to spend much time alone in a bed, feeling his way through the pain of it all and pondering his life. In his pondering, he noticed two sets of daydreams emerge, daydreams rooted in response to his unfortunate situation. The first set of daydreams included what we might call visions of grandeur, a return to his old ways of noble revelry, life spent in throngs of riches and warfare, and in relationship with a particular woman of note. The second set of daydreams, though, prompted by his reading about the lives of the saints, involved his winning of souls, a life of simplicity, service, and surrender to God's intention for each of us, closeness with God for all eternity. Now, the first daydream left him filled with a burning heart, but only for a moment. The feeling of excitement, the racing heart, it faded over time and left Ignatius unsatisfied. The second daydream also filled him with a burning heart, and that burning in his heart was sustained. It left him feeling full and alive, ready and willing to do whatever it took to emulate the lives of the saints that had so deeply inspired him. And thus, Ignatius, in accepting exactly where he was, was opening himself to the power of conversion that was always there for him. And he embarked on a new, different path from that which anyone ever expected from him. He set off from right where he was, carrying his full history with him and journeying toward the very heart of God. He did much along the way. He went to the Holy Land, he went back to school, he moved to Paris and made friends with those who would become his first companions in the society of Jesus. And he moved to Rome, where he would administer the early society until the day that he died. Now, for our purposes, just after his convalescence, he notably spent a long stretch of time in a cave, taking stock of where he was and where he thought he would go. He named for himself in that cave the most important thing that he believed. And, in writing that thing down, he began to map out what unfolds for us still today, the spiritual exercises. We're going to return to that thing that he wrote in just a moment. But for now, let's stick with this notion of daydreams. That particular part of Ignatius' story isn't unique to him. Daydreams also played an important part in my life about 10 years ago. Indeed, I think it's safe to say that a daydream is the reason that I am here speaking with you at all. So where am I? Well, I'm here in Boston in a spiritual direction room converted into a makeshift recording studio. How did I get here? Well. I'm a son of the state of Wisconsin, born in Madison and raised in Green Bay. Yes, I'm a Packers fan. Yes, I like cheese, especially a good sharp cheddar. My family is Catholic. We prayed before dinner at night, and if my brother and sister and I behaved at Sunday Mass, my parents would take us to Mr. Donut afterward as a reward. My questions about God began at a young age, and St. Matthew Parish and school were like a second home to me. I served mass, I worked vacation Bible school, I played trumpet at the Easter and Christmas choirs. The first time that I considered the priesthood was the summer between my junior and senior year in high school. It was evening and a group of us were on a service trip through St. Matt's. Guided by some heroes of my faith, Mike, Jolene, Lori, as well as dear friends, and a fired up young priest who I only remember as Father John A strong but fleeting thought came to mind, and which I voiced aloud. Maybe I could be a priest. Then, as an undergraduate at St. Louis University, I met the Jesuits for the first time, and I loved them. I thought about joining. My freshman year roommate and I agreed that we would join together, actually. He is married now, but here I am. And then in college, a good friend, Father Mike Rozier, joined the Jesuits. All signs were pointing towards something good. But I was a college kid, caught up in an utterly unsustainable pace of life, and I graduated without the capacity to make a mature and well-discerned decision. So I hatched other temporary plans. I had visions of working at a potbelly sandwich shop on State Street in Madison, and so, I made that plan, but my parents offered a welcome intervention, and I ended up enrolling in an educational leadership program, some idea that working at a college would be a good career path. Along with the Jesuits, student affairs professionals at my undergraduate institution were deeply influential in my life, and I wanted to honor them. So off to Madison, where I discovered a diversity that I had never encountered before. I explored my privilege for the first time, and especially my white privilege and my male privilege. I made friends with people from across all spectrums, expressions of self that opened my eyes to a bigger world. Liberal college towns are pretty good for that sort of thing. Still, after two years in Madison, I felt compelled to re-engage the Jesuit world, and I spent the next four years in Omaha, Nebraska, a year at Creighton Prep teaching, and then three years at Creighton University working in student development. My exploration of Ignatian spirituality was guided by personal interest, spiritual direction with Father Greg Carlson, masses at the university, and the friendship of Fathers Dick Hauser, John Schlegel, Kevin Schneider, and other Jesuits. I had great friends, I dated, I certainly wasn't good to everyone, and I made my share of apologies. I was figuring things out, always tugged toward this idea that being a Jesuit might work for me. And God? God simply wouldn't let the notion go. So after some helpful advice to pay attention to my daydreams, I realized that in my quietest, most content moments, the idea of being a Jesuit quickly bubbled to the surface. In the midst of a busy and fulfilling work, social and spiritual life, being a Jesuit captured my imagination. After years and years of pondering and holding the fullness of my life in prayerful consideration, I finally felt ready to make a decision. I was invited to apply to the Society of Jesus and was accepted. And at the age of 29, I began my Jesuit journey in St. Paul, Minnesota. And now this is where I am in Boston, nine and a half years later. Ignatius and me and maybe you have been compelled by daydreams. Now, what to do with them? Back to Ignatius and that thing that he wrote down, what we call the first principle and foundation. Now, we've all encountered a mission statement before. You may have even written a mission statement, a personal statement, something for a project you've been involved with. And when we come across a good mission statement, it has the power to actually shape everything that we do. The first principle and foundation can be thought of as a mission statement for the spiritual exercises. Its words guide us as they guided St. Ignatius. And everything we do within the spiritual exercises unfolds from this first principle and foundation. To borrow an image from my friend Brian Strasberger, if the spiritual exercises serve as a map which we follow to the very center of our being with God, then the first principle and foundation is the key to that map. It also tells us the meaning of life. If you've ever pondered that question before, Spoiler alert, the answer is coming fast. Finally, the first principle and foundation, as Michael Ivins notes, is not simply a guide for the spiritual exercises, but rather the groundwork for the whole moral and spiritual edifice. It is a point of reference, not only for the exercises, but for our entire lives. In short, it is important, and when engaged, can dramatically and powerfully reshape how we live. So that's a lot of hype about the first principle and foundation. Why don't I just read it for you? This particular translation comes to us from George Gans. And it says this Human beings are created to praise, reverence, and serve God our Lord, and by means of doing this, to save their souls. The other things on the face of the earth are created for the human being to help them in pursuit of the end for which they are created from this it follows that we ought to use these things to the extent that they help us toward our end and free ourselves from them to the extent that they hinder us from it to attain this it is necessary to make ourselves indifferent to all created things in regard to everything which is left to our free will and which is not forbidden consequently on our own part We ought not seek health rather than sickness, wealth rather than poverty, honor rather than dishonor, a long life rather than a short one, and so in all matters. Rather, we ought to desire and choose only that which is more conducive to the end for which we are created. There it is. Not only the meaning of life, By our praise, reverence, and service, we have the opportunity to be with God forever, but also the way in which we can make that meaning come alive. Remember our guiding question, where are you? The first principle and foundation helps us approach an answer. It names the goal to be with God forever. Sounds like a nice place to end up, right? Indeed, salvation is the end of our lives as people of Christian faith. And we attain that salvation through our praise, reverence, and service. And we've got everything at our disposal to help us along the way. All created things. Sunsets and skateboards, water and wine, best friends and brothers, humpback whales and Gwen Stefani's hollaback girl. Everything can be a source of deeper praise, reverence, and service to God. Answering the question, where are you? requires us to take stock given that end, the purpose of our lives. Simply put, do we really believe that the goal of our lives is to be with God forever? Honesty is the best quality when we answer. So where are you with that? It's good as we begin to consider with God where we think God is inviting us to go from our point of beginning. Another key in the first principle and foundation demands something major from us. Indifference. Now let's be clear, indifference does not mean a lackadaisical perspective on life, a laissez-faire approach which leads to indecision, a holy apathy, an attitude of cavalier expectation that I deserve everything I have or that I am the center of the universe. Another spoiler, I am not the center of the universe, and neither are you. If it's all about you, then you're probably in the wrong place. Indifference in the Ignatian tradition demands that we take stock. We name where we are, and then, with greater love than fear, decide whether our own ways and means are disruptive to God's. It also means asking a tough question of ourselves. Can I take or leave any good thing, depending on whether it helps me serve God's greater glory? This is not easy. Given a choice between health and sickness, most of us want to be healthy. We also want to be seen as honorable. We want to have everything that we need for a certain level of comfort. And we want to live good, long lives. But as we all know well, we can only control so much. How willing are we to rest in the tension of our desire to control everything, to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and the sometimes hard reality that God and not I am in control. How willing am I to reorient my life toward God and not myself? Let me share a story to illustrate what I mean. Now, I consider myself a funkle, a fun uncle. I have two nieces and a nephew in my immediate family, as well as a host of other friends' kids who give me the chance to lean into my quirky side and play the role of human jungle Jim. A few years ago, my niece was interested in something that I found super weird. She wanted to explore the darkness. Now, my parents' basement has no windows, and so with all the lights off, the only illumination is a modest sliver of brightness from underneath the door at the top of the stairs. I remember being terrified of this when I was a kid. And when I would turn the lights off in the basement, I would sprint up the stairs to get back into the light of the hallway above. Only monsters and fear remained in that dark basement and I wanted out. But my niece, only five or six at the time, felt compelled by this darkness. And so she would ask could, to go down into the basement and stand next to the light switch while she embraced the pitch blackness. I would shut the light off, and she would carefully meander around for a moment before suddenly asking that the light be turned back on again. The harshness of the fluorescent light would explode all around, and after just a moment of adjustment, she would look around and take stock, noting where she was in relation to this thing or that thing in the room. And then she would ask for the darkness again. Sometimes she'd explore for just a few seconds and sometimes a little longer before asking for the light. While she never explained her little game, I felt deeply compelled. She was pointing me toward a simple truth. When we're bumbling along in the dark, it's good to have someone to turn the light on and show us where we stand, to show us where we are. Much of the time, we, you, and I, are simply carrying on. As has been the case for many of us during this time of pandemic, we are just taking it one day at a time. We slow down, we wash our hands, we wear masks, we don't pick our noses. We approach others with caution, and we take frequent moments to assess the situation that we are in. After a year, all of these things have become routine for me, and I do a lot of it without thinking. So often in life, I find myself on a strange kind of autopilot. When things are going my way, I carry on without without much notice. But when discomfort comes, or when I feel out of control, or when I'm not sure where I'm at, I try to shine a light on things through prayer and reflection. I let God turn the lights on, and with God, I note where I am. Praying with the first principle and foundation is in part the invitation to remember who we are, whose we are, and what we need to get where we're going. As I've said, we can't get where we're going without first taking major stock of where we are, and so I ask again, where are you? In mind, in body, in relationship with God, and in relationship with others, where are you? The goal of our lives is to be with God forever. We begin achieving that goal here and now by naming where we are. One last quick story to illustrate the need to answer this key question, where are you? On New Year's Eve 2005, I found myself in a diner with some good friends heading up north in Wisconsin for an evening of ringing in the new year. I ordered a four-egg omelet with sausage, bacon, cheddar cheese, sourdough toast, butter, and strawberry jelly. I had just finished my first semester in graduate school at UW-Madison and had graduated from college just six months before. During my senior year of college, I lived on a diet of buffalo chicken sandwiches and crinkle cut fries. So naturally, I had put on some weight. A lot of weight. Some people talk about the freshman 15. I was closer to something like the junior 40 In my younger years, I was a gymnast, and because of the incredible amount of training and conditioning, was absolutely rocking a six-pack set of abs. But now, at this point in my life, 2005, I had a big round belly, which, if I'm being honest, I sort of liked. Those eating habits, omelets, and buffalo chicken sandwiches, continued. And I don't know, maybe it was New Year's Eve, maybe some vision of a New Year's resolution, Maybe it was the fact that I had to sort of like roll out of my car and I was always sweating, I don't know. All I know is that when that omelet was set on the table before me, I recognized that something had to change. In that moment, by first naming just where I was, I was flooded with images of the past that had led me to that moment, and some daydream about a different kind of future. I didn't hate myself or beat myself up for what had happened. I had simply been bumbling along, the autopilot of life engaged and keeping me moving ever so slightly forward. But then the light came on. The next day, New Year's Day, I exercised. I talked with my friend Joe who put me on a weight training program and I found a rhythm at the gym five days a week. After a year and a half, I had lost about 50 pounds. And then I decided with my friend Molly to ride a bicycle across the United States, and we did it. I continued to exercise. I had some up days and down days. There have been a few stints, the past month or so included, when exercise wasn't a huge priority. But I remember that moment, a moment where I knew exactly where I was, where I had come from, and where I wanted to go. Such is the invitation as we begin this retreat. Sit down and invite God into your space. Together with God, figure out where you are and where you've been. Remember, God's been asking us where we are since our relationship with God began, knowing that our goal is to be with God forever, starting right here and right now is the first step. Be open. Remember that God is at work. Listen, and above all, pray. Insofar as it's helpful for you, I would suggest that you take a moment of quiet at some point today. In the description, we've included the text of the first principle and foundation. We've also included a few scripture passages that you might find helpful and some questions for you to ponder in prayer. So, read the first principle and foundation. Maybe pray with, Psalm 139, and remember that you are seen by God, or with Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and remember that God is looking for you, or my personal favorite, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and remember that the light always shines forth in the darkness. And in a moment of quiet, take stock. Where are you? Join me tomorrow for the second talk. Our question, who told you that? As we carry on, we will explore our history more deeply, we'll put our story in dialogue with the life of Jesus, we'll accompany him through his passion, and we'll remember that we are an Easter people. I just want to say thank you again. Know that I am praying for you, and I hope that you will pray for me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit,